0: we're going to look at the sinfulness of sin. It's not it's not my phrase. It's a puritan phrase. You'll hear from him later in the sermon, but the sinfulness of sin and the hope of God this morning. So There's a movie that came out a while ago now. I want to say 10 years or so ago. I think a little bit more than that. Mel Gibson directed it right after he directed and released The Passion of the Christ, which is if you haven't seen that, shame on you, you need to. Great movie. But it's called Apocalypto, and it's about the Mayan civilization, and it follows a tribesman that's not a Mayan, but uh, it's been a while since I've seen it, and I I really didn't look back too much at it, but kind of was pulling on what I remembered. But he's the protagonist, and he's uh, essentially drawn in through the cruelty and the power of the Mayan civilization, he and his family are drawn into the Mayan empire, and Tons of human sacrifice, um, lots of corruption within the Mayan Empire, and it's just a really intense movie that really charts the sort of fall of the Mayan Empire, but it's a fall from within. It's a corruption from within of a great civilization, and at the beginning of the movie, so at the end of the movie, you see, at the very end of the movie, the last thing you see after this protagonist, okay, spoiler, escapes, right? Makes it, but you don't kind of know where he's headed. But he's sort of made it, and now he's on the road. He's on his own. But uh, you see these ships, these Spanish uh, ships coming in from the Pacific Ocean to um, to dock and to and to really conquer, as we know, conquer that civilization, others. But uh, so that's sort of the, the thing that the whisper that you get at the end of the movie. So you might be tempted to think, oh, they were conquered from without, but the beginning of the movie. There's a quote from historian Will Durant, and and it's this quote, A great civilization is not conquered from without until it has destroyed itself from within. And that's really the thesis of the movie, and that's the sort of thing that Gibson explores, is how is this civilization conquered? Well, it conquered itself, essentially, previously from within, is his contention. Anyway, according to archaeologist Michael Coe, Mayan civilization in the central area in uh, Central America reached its full glory in the early 8th century, but it must have contained the seeds of its own destruction. For in the century and a half that followed, all its magnificent cities had fallen into decline and ultimately suffered abandonment. This was surely one of the most profound social and demographic catastrophes of all of human history. Y'all, this is what we see in Lamentation. This is what we see in Jerusalem in 587 B.C., um, this is what happens. She has so corrupted herself from within, and it's chronicled at the end of Second Kings and really expressed here in this book that an outside invader, invader whom God brings as his arm of punishment and justice is able to come in and just destroy Jerusalem. She's weakened herself through false worship, and through her sin, and through her, pers- her headlong pursuit of idolatry. And this language, there's language in this chapter in particular that is echoing directly. Every commentator makes this comment. Uh, A prophecy given by Moses toward the end of his tenure and the end of his life in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, saying to Israel, about to enter the promised land, God is giving you all these things. He's giving you his very self. He is your portion. He is your God. Stick to him. Keep covenant with him. If you do not, if you break covenant with him and go after the God's of the nations surrounding you, you will be visited by this curse and this curse and this curse. You will run and not be able to gain any traction. You will work and not be able to gain any fruit from your toil. You will be so anxious that a sound ah! will cause you will cause a hundred warriors to flee. Yet you will become cowards. You will become. Uh, ever, ever, you will be haunted within and without. You will be corrupted in every possible way, and it even, we'll get into this in a bit, but it even details the exact atrocities that Austin just read about here, and that was almost a thousand years prophesied before this happened. Um, verse 1, talking about the how the gold has grown dim, it's talking about the temple, it's talking about the fact that the temple has been the place where God has met with us, What? showed us that we were God's people. Who cares if you're God's people if he's not with you? The place where we knew he was with us, where he met with us, the place of sacrifice and atonement where peace could be made with God is destroyed. In other words, God's not with us anymore. The anointed one, verse 20, um, the person through whom God met us uh, preeminently, the king, has been, has been taken off in chains. Okay? One killed, the other taken away. Our city's been destroyed. Our culture's been ruined. Our people've been deported and killed. And now they're just ravaging each other and being ravaged. We've been reduced to utter poverty, cannibalism. God seems to have forsaken us. All this because we broke his covenant over and over and over. And we were warned, we were forewarned that this would happen. It's all in writing. All because of our rebellion and sin. We turned away from God to those those things that couldn't satisfy, to those people that we look to that couldn't satisfy and that couldn't save. You know, we see the same thing in the West today, in Europe, in America. We see the decay of our society, and it's, in a sense, being assaulted from without, but really decaying from within. Yesterday's Chronicle front page, left sidebar, UT. there's a University of Texas report on rape. Uh, one in ten women, I, I had to read it three times, I couldn't believe it, One in ten women at UT's academic institutions claim to have been raped at some point since they started as students. Can you believe that? I mean, even just the claim, I mean, is astounding that that we could live in a society where that sort of thing could be true. Can you imagine that 50 years ago? Um, You know, the way that we worship, who are our idols? People that play sports, nothing wrong with sports. Movie stars, people that act, nothing wrong with acting. Okay, we can do those. We should be doing those things to the glory of God, for His good, for our good, our enjoyment. But the fact that we hold those up—they are the poster people of our society. They are who we worship. That shows you how far we've come in our slide. How how hollowed out we are as a society. Um, It shows you that we are on our way down. Now, the history of the United States is a history of revivals. So. We are to be a people praying for revival. And the, our hope is not in our country, is it? It's in the living God. It's in the kingdom of Christ, which I will get to. But, but these are parallels. World Magazine cover article this week, uh, something like Real Life in La La Land in L.A., talking about the huge problem with homelessness, streets and streets and streets and streets, thousands and thousands and thousands, in San Diego of, of homeless. There's a huge amount of wealth in, the I almost said country, sixth largest economy in the world, right, um, if it were a country. But a huge Massive, massive wealth disparity. Same, same as the case here in Houston, uh, between between the the super rich, the rich, and the poor. Um, the rich are increasingly ignoring the poor. It's a sure sign of unhealth and, and godlessness. Abortion. Um, it's so obvious, so it's not need mention, but it needs mention. I, I, I did a, a paper on it in grad school, and I, what I was astonished to find, friends, is that I went in thinking, well, if I can just show through all the Neonatology and other information we have now—that this is a person in the womb, this little creature, this image of God, this imago Dei, into whom God has breathed His life—if um, I can show it's a person, and then case closed—I was astonished to find that actually that's not the issue at all anymore. Everybody knows that's looked into it at all because of the superabundance of information we have. Everybody knows on both sides it's a person. That was what astonished me. The issue is, I have the right to do what I want to do. My own personal happiness and rights trump everything in our culture. There's no higher allegiance, and once your culture has gotten to that place, the cancer eating away at your culture is, is, is evident. Um, it's rotting from the inside. Before long, if we keep this course, an outside force won't have to apply much pressure to take over. If you've read enough history, this is nothing new. You've, you've seen this. You've seen it. We've seen it for decades. It's worse than ever. Okay? Pornography, the sex industry, trafficking, they're rampant. We're in the, we're in the midst of that right here. Look south, and, and that's what you see. Wealth disparity over here. Um, God has been removed from our schools, from our government discourse, from our courtrooms, from our public discourse. Um, and to be fair, to be fair, Israel is, is, is parallel to the church. God's people, God's people, not to America. Okay? Um, but let me, let, me, let me turn my guns on the church for a minute uh, in verse 13 you have the author here saying it's essentially the fault of the prophets and the priests who did not give us the perfect undiluted word and warning of God that we're here because Moses warned us a long time ago and what they were doing instead was giving us the things we wanted to hear telling us you're going to be fine no invaders going to come you're good to go you're God's people his temples here Jerusalem's well walled you're going to be okay I mean, transfer to, just transfer that to America. Like, we have such confidence, such overweening confidence in who we are. But um, they were, the preachers of the day were responsible for giving the people God's word and warning the people of God's justice, of his purity, of his holiness, of the covenant, of the fact that they violated, but if they ran to God and repented, he would take them back. Uh, and, And instead, they were unfaithful. And so, you know, our pulpits today are full of charlatans giving people what they want. You know, I, I was tempted to, it's hard in lamentations. You'd have to do some serious histrionics to, uh, to, in um, some gen, major gymnast, textual gymnastics, to give a happy message <laughs> in this book. But uh, I could do it. And, and uh, you know, most churches wouldn't, not, not to trumpet this church, we have, we're, we're full of sinners, I'm one of them. We have plenty of problems. Thank God we worship a sinless Savior, but... We have pulpits full of, of preachers giving people what they want, not what they need. Uh, tickling ears, assuaging consciences, preaching a health and wealth gospel. How is a health-wealth gospel different from our culture? That is what our culture embraces. Health, wealth, at any cost. It, that, that's our God. So what's different? How, how is there a difference? There's not. The church is just like the culture. In, a, in a professedly Christian homes, let's narrow the focus. You know, the TV. Again, I'm not, uh, sports, uh, movie, movie stars, TV in a house, that's fine. We have a TV in our house, and, and even if we, uh, that doesn't make it, make it right. But TV's central. Our TVs are on constantly feeding us at the center of our lives. The internet, smartphones, they dominate. The scriptures, the word of God, prayer, it's not central. Are you joking? It's not central. Um, impatience and anger are the norm in our homes. How are we different from the world? Uh, divorce is apparently every bit as high, if not higher, in the church. I can't even, again, it's sort of like the stat about the UT 1 in 10 rapes since they started a student. I can't even believe it, but it's true. Three points this morning. I told you it wasn't going to be a fun message. We're going to get there. It's got to be hard before it's good, y'all. Um, three points this morning. Sin makes us miserable. Sin makes us monsters. And God hates sin, and we'll end it. Point three, the day of the Lord. Okay, so first let's jump into sin makes us... Miserable. Sin makes us miserable. Y'all, sin sucks the color out of life. You see that. It sucks the color out of life. In the first seven or eight verses of this book, of this chapter, rather, excuse me, Lamentations 4, the, temple of the, gold's been, uh, the, the gold of the temple has been scattered, it's what you start off with. Um, the colors from the goal of the temple, uh, you have to the wealthy clothed in purple in verse 5, to the princes whose skin was white as snow, a sign of wealth and privilege in a day when laborers were tanned by the sun and their complexion was hale and ruddy as coral. Their beauty was like a sapphire, verse 7. You turn from that to the devastating consequences of sin. Their skin has become what? Black as fireplace soot. They sit atop gray ash heaps, charcoal. Sin sucks the color out of life. It casts a gray pall. Over everything I think of, my mind turns to Verdun, the fields of Verdun, France, and in, in the great war, World War I. Everything, you know, above the horizon, everything below the horizon, and everything about life in those trenches was gray, mud-brown, and black. Even the corpses that you had to step over three, four, five deep to get to the Germans before they mowed you down with their machine guns. Okay? Everything. It was a gray, a monochromatic world, and sin causes war. And uh, it also grays us and blackens us and, see, and and sucks out the color from our souls, not just from our world, but from our inner world, from life on the inside. Um, I remember getting contacts in the eighth grade it's when I first had corrective stuff. And, you know, it happens so slowly, your vision blurring and stuff, that I didn't realize that I needed correction. And then I went to the eye doctor, and sure enough, I did. And so I put in, it took me like an hour of crying, you know, to get in the context. But I finally got him in. I'll never forget, it was right up here off of Potomac or something. And I stepped outside, and I looked at a tree across the street. And I'll never forget, I could see every leaf on the stinking tree. Y'all ever had that experience where you went from where I went to perfect vision 2015? It was amazing. It was a whole new world. Um, that I've been missing out on. And, and sin causes our world, our inner world, our outer world, everything in existence, life itself, to become <clears throat> fuzzy, to lose distinctiveness, to lose its sharp edge. It desensitizes. It, uh, you know, it's like my kids' eyes after they've watched two hours of Bubble Guppies <laughs> or whatever cartoon because we're trying to do, you know, every once in a while we'll sit them in front of the TV for way too long because we have something to do. You can, talk about, you can talk about my bad parenting later with me and Robin. Um, but man, it, afterwards, you just you could see the ill effects. You know, they're like <laughs> zombies. And you could see in their eyes afterwards, the light's been extinguished. Um, it's what sin does to your heart. It dazes. It dulls. Um, let's, take, let's downshift a little bit just to get into something more serious. You look at a man's eyes who's been entrapped by pornography. You look at someone's eyes who has a problem with that. You look at someone's eyes who's been sucked into that and who is drawn to that and who is uh, being consumed by that. You look at a man who's just indulged in whatever, strip club, I don't know, pornography. The light's gone or fading. It's, his eyes are flat, pallid, gray. They're losing life. They're not lifeless. He's not dead, but they're losing life. Um, to oppose that, the light of the eyes not after he's just watched two hours of TV, but the light of the eyes of a child. When you look at, um, you know, Joni, your child, uh, <clears throat> Kensington, and uh, her, the light in her eyes, the light in Susu, I have a two-year-old, most of you know her, light in her eyes when she runs in this morning and grabs me. She's like a, a human ball and chain. She has a new thing where she just she gets on my, on my leg and just sits there. And uh, like a little monkey, and, and I can't even go anywhere, but it's so sweet. But her light in her eyes, that's the light of God. That's the light of life. And our sin extinguishes that. It chokes it out. It casts, it, it sucks the color out of our outside world and out of our inner world. It casts a green rain curtain over everything. I, I struggled with sexual sin in college, and uh, it's not the only time, don't worry, but <clears throat> I did <clears throat> And I still remember that sort of gray rain curtain being sort of cast over everything when I would go through bouts of succumbing to temptation. Um, Same world, same color, same beauty, same life, but things had changed because I was seeing them through eyes that had grown dim, through a heart that was growing hard. So sin makes us miserable, but it also, point two, makes us monsters. Verse eight, um, the skin that was once white and ruddy as coral is now dry and hard as wood. Imagine. There's a homeless woman that uh, bright blonde hair that's on west timer that I see all the time. And she, she has skin almost more close to that than I've seen. And just brown, very wrinkly like a catcher's mitt. Just, just in, I'm sure it's, it's been baked by the sun. She's out in the sun all the time. Um, this is what sin does to our soul. It petrifies our soul. It hardens our soul. Pharaoh, you all know, most of you know, Um, Pharaoh, he, in his bouts with God, in his resistance to the word of God over and over and over again, when we resist the word of God spoken to us in its attempt to pierce us, to offer a way of hope to us, to offer the path of life to us, when we resist it over and over again, our hearts harden, and that's what happened to Pharaoh's heart, um, Have you ever felt your heart hardening after, say, indulging in a tasty bit of gossip? You just feel a little click. You feel like it's a little less permeable. It's a little less porous. A little less able to let love pass in and out. Have you ever felt that? Um, Especially if it's gossip that you knew you shouldn't indulge in. There was some forethought and you did it anyway. Uh, Speaking an unkind word to someone. Watching something you shouldn't have. Lashing out in anger. To some eternal soul, even a child, done it. I think it's in the four loves, C.S. Lewis speaks memorably about how choosing not to love seals our hearts off as if from air. And he says, sealed up, they harden, they petrify, and eventually they die. They become impenetrable, unable to receive love, unable to give love. Um, sin dehumanizes, there's, again, Lewis, uh, Space Trilogy, Book 2, Paralandra. Uh, the bad character, Weston, uh, Satan has taken over his body, so he's just evil incarnate, and he, Chris always says in his, uh, when he's in his sort of fighting mood, he wishes he could just, he's called the unman in Paralandra, because he's, he's got a body, but he's not a man, he's not human, he's just evil incarnate. And Chris is like, man, I wish I just had an unman sometimes to pummel. <laughs> you know, it's like it's no worries. I get to punch this thing that looks like a human, but it's not human. And that's exactly what Ransom ends up doing um, toward the end of the book. But at one point, Weston uh, chews on a live frog. There's no death on this planet. It's an Edenic sort of recreation, reenactment. And he get, grabs a frog and just starts chewing on it and kills it, just for the hell of it. Now, you not hungry? Doesn't need it, leaves it dead, but just, just because, just to be cruel. Saint Augustine in his Confessions, which if you haven't read, and I would, if you haven't read them, I would recommend them to you. One of my favorite books. Augustine struggled big time with sexual sin. He steal, He says, "I remember when I was a kid and I stole apples from my neighbor's apple tree. Again, not because I was hungry. Didn't even eat them. Threw them away." Just because. That is sin. That is what sin does. It hardens us. It seeks destruction. And it seeks in kind to destroy us. Its father, Satan, is prowling around seeking whom he might destroy, body and soul. Sin feeds on us. We'll get to that when we get to the table. It feeds on us. It is cruel. It is wasteful. It wastes us. And it wastes God's creation. And so he has to war against it. He has to war against it. And that's what we see in Lamentations here. Um, verse 3, the infants have no more milk. Their tongues swell. Uh, they're dry, and they stick to the roof of their mouth. <clears throat> There's, they can't even cry. There's no more saliva to cry. The moms have no more milk. So <clears throat> they boil the unutterable. They boil their own children. It's on record, 587 B.C., and, and fight over who will get what part of that child. And, on. Um, it, uh, and and verse 3 says, these moms make jackals look kind to their young. They're like ostriches who are known for having, uh, for trampling on their eggs, sort of willy-nilly cracking the eggs of their, they're just like that. They've lost their humanity because they've run to other gods. They've run to things that are not God to satisfy, to secure, and we do the same. Um, you know, cannibalism. To drill into that, some again, verse 10, Deuteronomy 28, the, the bit where Moses prophesies, "This is what will happen if you turn from the living God." Um, Deuteronomy 28, verses 53 and following. If you want to read that, it's part of Holy Writ. It is even more descriptive, if you can imagine, than this when it comes to cannibalism and the mothers eating their children. It's even more descriptive, and I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna mention, go into that detail, but. Um, this is after, in, in Jerusalem in 587 B.C., when the Babylonians invade, they first siege uh, the city. They wall about it and they blockade it so that nothing can come in or out. So for almost two years, scholars say, uh, there's just the, city, the city has no in or out. So there's, ab, there's absolute starvation. Um, and they're surrounded by doom. And this is, this is the place that we find that we find. Uh, Jerusalem. In careful when you read about when we read about cannibalism and we are disgusted and we should be, but careful before you exempt yourself. Careful. Um, the text goes out of its way to say that it was the most tender, refined, and compassionate women among them who did this. Uh, Tim Keller, pastor in New York, he has a con- he, he talks a fair amount about a sociological study that was done. Um, during uh, times of uh, where the where laws in a society break down for a short period of time, and people can basically do what they want with no consequences. The law is not going to crack down on you. Everyone's kind of doing it. It's just a free-for-all. You really see what humanity, what's inside humanity, what no, all the restraints, are, all the outward restraints are cast off, so you do what you want to do. And the, the results are pretty similar. A lot of these kind of studies have been done. 10%. Uh, of of society will always do this sort of thing, essentially. 10% of society um, won't won't ever, no matter what the conditions are, no matter if there are laws in place or not, no matter if there are riots going on or not. But 80%, 80% partake. 80%, the great majority of society. When outward constraints that are normally there, law, people's good opinion, no one else is doing it, when they're removed, 80% of people we'll go ahead and break the law in some egregious form or another. It shows you what's really going on in here, doesn't it? Um, Plato does something similar with, in his Republic with the, guide, the tale of Guy G's ring, which Tolkien almost certainly got his, his idea for the ring from. But it's the idea that a ring that turns you invisible. And, and then all of a sudden, we see. Once I have something that turns me invisible, all of a sudden, I see no consequences. I see what I really want to do. All sorts of constraints keep us behaving often, but our deep desire is corrupt. Sin, opposition to God, and for self-gratification at any cost, it's the warp and woof of who we are, it's our constitution, it's what the Bible tells us. It wasn't always God made us good, but rebellion from him, a choice to go to something else and not him, broke us off from the source of life, and death took over immediately, and that's what we're born into, and that's the problem that the Bible sets up. And it's the only thing, really, that satisfactorily explains the state of our world. And also the things that are done, we, we rage against it. We know it's not right because we were created for something better. We were created good. Think about pornography. How many of you engage in it? I know I'm bringing it up a lot. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come. Money, pornography, and uh, sex. You're going to be hearing about those more and more. Why? Because they surround us. Okay? For, for us not to talk about them is foolishness. Okay? It's foolishness. Think about pornography. How many of you engage in it? Would you if you knew others were watching you at that moment? You do it because you think no one else is watching you. It shows what's really there in your heart, what you truly want. Um, what else would you do if you knew you could get away with it? It's a diagnostic for the health of, of who you are, of who I am. Our heart is desperately sick as the scriptures tell us, and we need a solution. Think about how you treat your spouse in private. Um, think about how I treat mine in private sometimes, in my worst moments, which come all too often. I speak with disdain quite often, unfortunately, to, to my wife. But then uh, the phone rings, hello? Answer in a chipper tone. Now, which one of those, the man I am in private or public, tells me is a truer gauge about what's going on here? Which one? Um, I know I'm not alone, because the Bible tells me, again, this is our human problem. It's what led to where we are here in Lamentations. We're black with soot. Our skin's like wood, hard, including our souls. We're sitting atop ash heaps. We're boiling and eating our own children. Um, Don't do yourself the disservice of convincing yourself that this doesn't talk about you. It doesn't talk about me one reason I love reading about Hitler. Um, He's a man who had ultimate power and no constraints. And look where it led him. Look what he did with it. Fascinating study. Tragic study. Um, Hannah Arendt, an American Jew, I believe she worked for the New York Times at the time, but she was a journalist sent to Nuremberg, among others, that uh, the Nuremberg war trials after World War II, when a lot of the war criminals Uh, when the war criminals were tried, many of them German-Nazis. And what she said in that report, um, and I would recommend that report to you, I think it's the report of the the trial of Adolf Eichmann uh, is, is where you find this. But what she found was essentially, among other things, that these people were not monsters. At least they didn't start off that way. They were humans. Many of them, I mean, they were normal humans with normal stories up until they got swept up in this stuff. And it happened by degrees. Their slide into this stuff. Um, This was absolutely, especially coming from a Jew, absolutely inflammatory, absolutely unacceptable. And it's still, if you talk about it in the Jewish community today, it still ruffles lots and lots of feathers. The idea that these people that we so want to be alien, other, not like us at all, we're not monsters. They became monsters. But they, they were humans in many ways, just like you, just like me. And can I say, friend, if you can't embrace that, you are missing out on so, so, so much that Lamentations wants to teach you and that God wants you to see. Missing out on so much that God has to give you in Christ. So much of his grace and mercy. If you cannot see that, if you cannot identify with that, what hope have we? Well, before I offer that, I want to I want to paint an even, if I can, drill down and paint an even bleaker picture for a sec. Um, sin overpromises and underdelivers, like its chief salesman, Satan. Genesis three. What did he say? What did he say to Eve, and Adam was standing right by? He said, "You shall be as gods," encouraging her to disobey God's clear command. "You shall be as gods, though, if you do this, knowing good and evil." Sounds fantastic, but no, not so much. What they did in disobeying God plunged our world into chaos and evil and ruin. What did they do right after that? They hid from each other. They covered up. No more vulnerability. No more wanting to be known. No more wanting to be seen. No more wanting to be understood. Just hiding. Just shame. They, there was a horizontal covering up and there was a vertical. They ran from God as well. When he came calling, they didn't want to answer. They were hiding behind a bush. Um, And ever since then, friends, sin causes us to want to cover up the shame that it brings, that it brings, the very real shame. Um, We do it with comfort. We do it with, in this culture, we excel in that. We excel more than, I would say, any other culture in the history of the world. We cover up our shame and our sin with comfort, with cars, homes. I'm going to go through a litany. Second homes, ranches, elite schools, high-powered degrees, careers, food, coffee, alcohol, parties, boys, girls, husbands, wives, children, TV, TV. Internet, illicit images on the Internet, cell phones, social media, and on and on and on and on it goes. But none of these things will ever truly cover your shame or your sin problem. Your hands are like those of Lady Macbeth. You cannot wash the blood clean. You cannot do it. Um, All these diversions, they will not last forever. They They can't cover and they won't last. They will burn away like the trail of a slug in the hot sun, and we will be left holding the bag, Um, the bag of our shame, the bag of our sin, before a just God who is angry at our sin because it's destroying us and it's hurting his creation that he loves very, very much. This is what Lamentation shows us. Our idols, not shiny images that we set up, but created things, good things, that we've given our hearts to, that we've looked to to satisfy us, that we've looked to fulfill us, that we've given our allegiance to, Our idols cannot save us. They will fail us when the bottom drops out. My friend this week, I was working away at a coffee shop and he came up and we started talking briefly and he said, pray for me, man. Um, I might have a little node in in my throat, thyroid, possibly thyroid cancer. He owns a company. It's not going to save him. He has a great wife. She's not going to save him. He has awesome kids. They're not going to save him. His house not going to save him. His good looks, his athleticism, his intelligence, all of which he has, not going to save him. Um, You know, Keller gives an example. I'm going to share this because I know I can. I think it's going to help. I pray that it does. Robin, uh, she grew up with a lot of money, my wife. She grew up with a lot of money. Nothing wrong with that. But, nothing wrong with money, nothing wrong with possessions, but there's something wrong with our hearts. And so what our hearts tend to do, when we have a lot, is they tend to Look to things for security, right? To look to our, th- our things to satisfy unduly. I felt that almost every day of my life. And I, we were taking a walk one day past this house that she lived in that was just, it's just amazing. It's an amazing thing to look at. And she said, I tell you what, it was amazing that she said this to me. She said, I remember feeling absolutely, when I was in the middle of all that, I remember, she was what, 16, 15, I felt absolutely untouchable. Anything happened in my life, dad, take care of it. Dad, take care of it. Because I got money, it was like a wall protecting her and giving her a false sense of security. It made her feel secure, but the answer is no. Keller tells uh, a story about one of his congregants that was a student in seminary, and she'd basically given up. She was convinced that God was calling her to full-time ministry, and she, uh, she was on the path to business school. Nothing wrong with business business school. I'm not I'm not against TV, business school, sports on her path to business school to get a great job, career, but then God moved her heart and called her to full-time ministry, and she was in seminary, and uh, her mom got wind of this, of course, and her mom um, her mom called the professor, or the professor called her, and it was just, just, I don't think her mom was a believer, and just didn't get it, you know, like, my, my daughter's been getting the best grades in school forever to get to this point, to get to a place of security, so she can get a good job, so she can be secure, is the word she used. And the professor said, ma'am, excuse me, I have to say this, but you know, the Earth is spinning on its axis at over 1,000 miles per hour, this huge ball of rock and molten lava. And we're in this empty space, or in the heavens, rather, you know, traveling around with all these planets and asteroids and everything else surrounding us in this solar system. Jupiter just a couple neighbors away. that has got a storm on it that's twice as big as our Earth. And we're careening around the sun at even greater rate of speed, this huge ball of nuclear fusion, and that's just our solar system, which is a tiny, tiny corner of the neighborhood of our massive galaxy, which is one of literally, now we know, trillions, trillions of galaxies. And you're, and at the best, at the best case, you know, we have 60 years left. Some of us, I could drop dead right now from something bursting in my head. Any of us could. Tomorrow, you know, yesterday, two people on the MS-150 training got hit by a car that took out, you know, they got killed. Boom, done. Bet they weren't expecting that, I, you know. That could, any, at any moment, we're standing on a trap door. At any moment, it could open, and we are standing before the living God. Is any, and you're calling business school? You're calling a career where you can make some bucks for 50 years security? Is that really going to secure you? No. And this is one of the things that, this is one of the reasons this book is in God's holy word help us to see we stand on trap doors when God, the rock of salvation, calls us to fix our feet on him through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what happened in 587 BC to Israel, it was the consequence of covenant breaking. That's very, very clear from this text, and it's linked back to Deuteronomy 28. Um, God had said to Israel, I'm going to enter into covenant with you. Be your God. You're going to be my people. But they turned from him, and they broke covenant egregiously over And over again, like I said, it was foretold almost a millennium before that this would happen if they forsook God. And God is not flying off the handle here and bringing the Babylonians in. He's doing exactly what he promised he would do because they are tearing. God's word is the moral fabric of the universe. It holds things together. And when we tear against the moral fabric of what holds things together, what do we expect in our lives but chaos? God's not mean. He's just. He's true. He's good. He's good. And this is what happens when a baby comes out of its womb and if it could, takes a knife and stabs the mother who just bore it and gave it life and is looking forward to taking care of it and nurturing it. When that happens, it will die. This is what we do when we embrace sin. This is what we do when we turn to false idols. This is what the book of Lamentations is about. This is our situation. Okay. You ready for some good news? In Deuteronomy 28... Verses 60 and 61, years, 900 years before all this happens, delineating what's going to happen to a T if you turn from me, my people. All it's, God says in verses 60 and 61 of Deuteronomy 28, he says, all the plagues of Egypt that I rained on your enemies who were my enemies because I've yoked myself to you because I love you, no matter what. All of, the, all of the plagues I will visit on you. The, the plagues that delivered you from the iron furnace, I will visit on you if you turn from me. This is what sin does. It's an un, what the plagues were, where they were sort of a God taking his hand, as it were, away from the governing of creation in, in a little small way and just kind of letting, letting, things, letting chaos just reign. God's common grace and his providence is woven. It's shot throughout creation. And there was a sense in which he just kind of took his little finger off. And it was an unraveling of creation. It was an unraveling of the Egyptians. And God is saying, you will unravel inside and out as a people if you turn from me. And, you know, Israel was exempted. She was delivered from that. But not because she was better than the Egyptians. She wasn't. It's because in chapter 12 of Exodus, God says, when he's about to lead the people out, he says, I'm going to lead you out with a mighty hand. But first you have to kill a lamb. It has to be pure. It has to be blemishless. It has to be a certain age, basically a full adult male. And you've got to slit its throat and take the innocent blood and put it over the doorpost of your residence. And an angel of death is going to pass by. And everyone who's not covered by the blood in the house that's covered by the blood who's not eating, consuming that innocent lamb that didn't deserve to die. You're consuming something that didn't deserve to die in your place because you do deserve to die. If you are not doing that, I don't care who you are, Egyptian or Israelite, you will die. You will die because you are sinful. And that lamb, all that was not consumed by the people with staff in hand ready to exit Egypt was to be thrown in the fire so that every single bit of that lamb would be completely burned up and consumed. Nothing is to be left of the lamb. If it is decimated, that's your ticket to salvation. You'll live. That's what God said. And God honored that. And Israel walked out free. A sinful people, free. You know, the question is this. How in the heck, how in heaven's name, could a woolly quadruped bah, save a sinful people by its blood? The answer is, it couldn't. It never took away none of those sacrifices for over a thousand years. Morning and night performed in the tabernacle and then in the temple when they got to Jerusalem. None of those sacrifices, none of the myriad sacrifices of Solomon ever took away a single sin. Why? Because they were all pointers to the one who would come and would completely take away All sin of those who look to him. You know, when Jesus Christ, 1400 years later, came on the scene and John the Baptist was with his disciples, what is the first thing that he said when Jesus walked on the end of the scene? He turned to his disciples. He didn't say, hey, keep your eyes off him. Look at me. I'm trying to build my team here. They just planted a church down the road. Stay here. He'll build his own team. Not what he said. He said, behold. In other words, he didn't just say, look, behold means fix your gaze on this guy. Behold what? The Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ did not come to show us what a nice life looks like. He came on mission, as we've learned from our studies of Matthew and from John. He came for one reason, to die in our place as an atoning sacrifice. Because of all of our shame, all of our offense, all of our rebellion, on that cross, he was consumed by the wrath of God burned up completely in the mystery of mysteries nothing left all of the hell that you would have experienced and if you're not in him and you don't come to him that you will experience dear friend if you do not run to christ all of the hell that you would have experienced if you've looked to jesus to save you he endured within a span i don't know how an infinity of suffering everything because god is just everything you would have taken all the shame all the misery All that burning in very real hell and dominion by Satan and all of his host, he experienced on that cross, and that is why he cried out. And that is why, before the cross, he said, God, I was in my quiet time this morning. If there is, in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there is any other way, the ultimately obedient, perfectly loving, I will do anything you say, son of God, said, he saw what was coming, and he said, God Almighty, if there is any other way to save humanity, Let's do that, please, but not your wrath. Not, not only separation from your goodness, complete separation, utter privation, utter hardening, utter colorlessness, but also the wrath against sin, the ending of all evil poured into him for everyone who would trust in him. He saw it coming and he said, God Almighty, if there's any other way, but not my will. I trust you. You do what you need to do. I trust you. And we know because the cross happened, it was the only way we could be saved. There is no other way. And yet anyone can come. Ultimately, so exclusive. There's only one way to life with God. There's only one way to forgiveness. It's looking to him who was consumed so you don't have to be. But anyone can come. There's no other condition. No race. No gender. No nationality, no young, no old, doesn't matter in Christ, in Christ. Um, And can I just say, I had all sorts of goodness. I'm just going to read one bit prepared for you. Sin makes us miserable, but hell is simply an extension of that with the grace of God, the common grace of God that everyone that's on planet Earth, believer in Christ or not, experiences, okay, okay? All that's taken away. It's the unvarnished payment forever of what we owe God. Who is in, he's infinite, so he's infinitely offended by our sin. Every part of him is offended, so payment must be infinite. Let me just read you a little bit before I close of, 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 of the destruction of sin and of hell, its consequence. This is from Ralph Venning, a Puritan, The Sinfulness of Sin. He wrote this into the 17th century. He says this, He says, it is the design and work of sin to make man eternally miserable and to undo him, as I've been saying, soul and body forever. The punishment that sinners must undergo will be such a state of misery that all the miseries of this life are not to be compared with it. They are nothing to it. The sinner can look for no relief from God. This is in hell. You can now, that's the point. For God judges and condemns him, none from conscience, For that accuses and upbraids him, none from the devils, for they torment him, none from hope, for that is departed. Can you imagine being in a place with no hope, where you are eternally regretting not having turned to the God who died for you? Can you imagine that kind of anguish? It's going to be on millions and millions and millions and millions of people, eternal souls. None from hope, for that is departed from him, none from time, for this state is forever. He talks about the judgment day of the Lord. He said, it that it is the day of wrath, which is the terrible day of the Lord. It's the day of vengeance, which is implacable. For God, who is now hearing prayer, will not then spare for their crying. Not even though they cry, Lord, Lord. God always acts like himself. Listen, listen to this before I close. He always acts like himself, like a God. When he shows mercy, it is like the God of all grace, who is rich in mercy and loves with a great love. So when he ex- executes wrath, and vengeance. He makes bare his arm and strikes, what? Like a god. Who knows the power of his anger? None, but the damned ones. They will know, and Christ knew in the place of all of us who deserve what he got. He knows, and he is beckoning to us. He who will not come again, he who now has opened up a portal in death, Open up a time for compassion and mercy and grace. God who acts like a God in his mercy is poured it out through Jesus Christ. He says, come, come anyone and flee to Christ, your way to salvation. Be completely free, completely clean, completely safe, completely secure, completely satisfied in him, okay? But when Christ comes again, he will come to judge and to finish evil. And you will, every sin, listen friends, Every sin, every single sin will be paid for in full because God is just. He can't let evil go. It's a parasite. It's destroying his creation. He wouldn't be good if he did. He has punished it in his son and provided a way. But when Christ returns, that way is finished. That way is over. When you die, your, your, time, your time for fleeing to Christ is over if you haven't done it. You're, there's no more hope. That's it. And you will be judged based on the sin you have committed, based on your own merit. Now, during this time before Christ returns, he's saying, I was judged in your place. Be judged for my merit so that I can be judged on that cross for your demerit. It's not open forever. When he comes back, he finishes evil. He finishes sin. He will strike as a God. And the book of Revelation has plenty about it. And what he is doing now, if you look at the end of this chapter, what he is doing now they cry out and they say, this, this is really bad, God. This is really, really bad. But our exile is basically coming to an end. And, and those who have stri- struck out against us, you will strike. And essentially, it's the, the, the chapter ends with this glimmer of hope. You are a God who's going to finish evil. That's what all this punishment is about for your people. You're, you're in the business of finishing evil. One, and you're doing it now through your redeemed, through your church, who should have been finished, but... Christ was finished and resurrected to a new kind of life in their place. And so, um, God, through his church, through the ones that he's died for, and anyone can come to him who looks to him for salvation. He is ending evil. He is restoring people to him. He's rebuilding cultures. He cares about everything we see and touch, especially about his own eternal people that he made for himself, whose life in Christ alone. And he, he will end it, and he's doing it now by degrees, but when he comes again, he will finish the work, and he will rule, and he will reign, and all who are his will come and reign with him, and enjoy him forever. And evil will be banished, and Satan will be banished, and all those who are not in Christ will be banished, away from his presence, under his wrath. And that is a great hope for us, and it is a great thing to cause us to dread and to fear the living God and to run to Christ and to preach Christ with everything in us, with our tongue, with our lips, with our hands and feet, with our actions, with our prayers, with everything we do, in everything we do to preach Christ as the way to salvation and to life. Sin, look at what it does to you inside and out. It destroys civilization. It's destroying you. You weren't made for it. It's why you're suffering. Come to the living God. He's provided his son, Jesus Christ. He's going to end evil. I want want to be on that team. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Um, Ultimately, it's where this book points us. Let me me finish with some prayer. Father, I thank you uh, for Jesus, the one who is eternally undone, who is unmade, who had your wrath poured out on him. Uh, For us, undeserving sinners, who are made righteous, Uh, through faith in the work of of our King, um, who was consumed as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world so that we don't have to be. Um, But I know this is a hard word. It's your word. I pray that it would land and that it would take full effect for your glory. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.